This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review an issue or two from my comic book collection, which many episodes I will select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents each for them. Were the issues worth 25 cents? Were they bargains at 25 cents? Or were they still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 99th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Doom 2099, 14 and 15, from Marvel Comics, cover dated February and March 1994. But first, a little feedback. We had a catch-up email from the irresponsible shag no wait irreconcilable irrevocable irresponsible sounds right but the irredeemable shag ah that's right thanks hi professor allen seems like forever since i sent you a note about the quarter bin sorry i've been listening but i'm the worst at leaving regular feedback actually shag don't worry about that I used to be much better at that as well. By the way, excellent work on the Who's Who in the Legion episodes. Shag said he really enjoyed the Vertigo Vortex and sent some rapid-fire thoughts. Episode 97. I've only read the first few trades of Fables. Love them. However, real life got in the way and haven't gotten back to them since. Been meaning to, but thanks for the spoiler on the identity of the adversary. Jeez, you could warn a guy. Good point, Shag. That was only ten years ago. No, wait a minute, Shag. That was ten years ago! Actually, I read somewhere that Willingham was considering having Peter Pan as the main villain. And then somewhere in the process of writing those first few batches of episodes, decided to change that to... And then Shag really comes through for me, in my defense. Almost to the point that I feel bad for mercilessly making fun of him for so long. Almost. Actually, I suspect that his email may have been hacked for this next part. Darn Russians. Also, sounds like after discounts and gift cards, the comics still only cost you a quarter or less from your wallet, so I'll allow it. I am really glad that Shag has come around on this. Now, if only we can convince Stella... On 100 Bullets, Shag said he'd never read it, but had always heard high praise. Your description of the issue was effective, and I was engrossed. Even to the point where that ending is still haunting me. And I didn't even read the comic. Such a disturbing story makes me wary of trying the book, but perhaps someday based upon the strong recommendation. Yeah, I generally have a sensitive disposition to certain things, and 100 Bullets is about as as tough or, or, or rough as a comic that I like to read. So it's, it's pretty close to that line for me. Sandman, great comics, great coverage. I was a monthly reader starting with issue 8. I was hooked and was one of those praising the book during its publication, especially when I was working at a comic shop during that time. But I was not one of those pretentious ones who downplayed superhero comics. I even had a chance to meet Neil Gaiman once. Such a nice guy. I picked up the recent Sandman Overture collection, but really don't understand any of it. Either Gaiman's style has changed, I've changed, or it was written for those on another plane of existence. You know, Shag, that may be literally, like actually, the first time I have ever heard anyone who has actually read Sandman Overture. Madame Xanadu. Now here was a great series. I loved this book. Read it in trade and was saddened when they pulled it from Vertigo for the New 52. Glad you enjoyed the issue you read. The art is astounding on this book. You should seek out the rest of the collections. Well worth your time. I actually have picked up issues 2 and 3. They cost me like a buck each, so I won't be talking about them here. But stay tuned for a future comics reading journal. And I'm sure I'll talk about them there. Now, in terms of Shag's email, there was an obvious oversight in his discussion. 
I asked him about it, and he immediately got back to me on this critical issue. She is smoking hot. Back to Shag's email. Animal Man. While I'm a huge fan of the character, I struggled towards the end of Jamie Delano's run. Looking at my files, I dropped the original series with issue 70. That was shortly after the issues that we talked about in that episode. The Delano stuff just got too weird for me. As I recall, Buddy was turning into a weird bird creature for a while there. I guess I like Animal Man best when he's a regular guy in situations that are beyond his control, sort of like the Jimmy Stewart of superheroes. When they start messing with who Buddy is or the makeup of the family, I grow disinterested. The Weird As you heard, I pimped these books recently on my JLI show. Truthfully, I haven't listened to the episode yet because I want to reread the comics first. Hopefully, I'll get to them in the next few months. Keep up the fantastic work. Looking forward to the epic Summer Long Episode 100. The Irredeemable Shag. The Fire and Water Podcast. Firestorm Fan. All-around great guy. Professor Allen's favorite listener. Who True Freaks podcast on the Two True Freaks Network, Mr. Congeniality 2016. What is he talking about in that close? Oh, oh, I get it. This is one of those, here are six items on a list and one of them is a lie? Or, or in this case, two? Maybe three? Well, I guess maybe his email wasn't hacked after all. That close sounds exactly like the man. Around the time that that episode was fresh, my in-laws were in town for a visit, and my brother-in-law and I hit the comic shop one day, along with M, and he discovered the glories of the quarterbin. I tweeted about this, and Dr. Ange commented that he envied me having an in-law who was into comics. He asked what he liked, and that Star Trek, we found a few books he didn't have. I commented that he and my wife, their twins, and they spent their growing up years watching Star Trek, Hulk, Wonder Woman, and tons of cartoons. So my wife definitely has roots in geekdom, as does her brother. On last episode, Free Comic Book Day, I was Joe Crawford, said this. Enjoyed the episode, Professor, like yourself. I had intended to only go to a couple of stores but found myself making four stops. Well, you beat me there, Iowa's Joe. First, he went to In This Issue Comics, and they had some 25-cent books, yes, and some good selections in the dollar bin, picked up one issue, and the boys got three each. Next, off to Books A Million. Got five there and some bargain trades. So I was actually pretty happy, but I wanted Attack on Titan. So like yourself, I decided to hit One more store. So off to Midwest Collectibles, which had one issue of Attack on Titan and half-priced back issues. Picked up a copy of Underdog as well as some half-priced Avengers issues and a short box. Finally went to Funtime Cards, Comics, and Collectibles. Finished the day with 12 free books for myself, and I lost count of how many the boys got. That is exactly what I like to hear, Iowa's Joe. He added that, like me, Free Comic Book Day is a holiday in the Crawford household. My favorite books were I Hate Image and Attack on Titan. Well, that's good considering all the lengths you went to get that. Both were really good one-and-dones. Honorable mention to Underdog, yes. And the Marvel Defender slash Guardians of the Galaxy issue. Thanks for the great show, as always. Thank you for the great listening. And great feedback. Mark Sweeney had a quick comment. Re, free comic book day. Nice haul. As the Saturday guy at my library, I know Emily's pain. So I hope you and others don't mind if I continue to vicariously live out my FCBD dreams through you. He also mentioned that that episode was a bargain at twice the price. Nathaniel Wayne of the Council of Geeks chimed in. His first topic was Doctor Who comics, which, as you may recall, are perennially my favorite 
of the free comic book day offerings. I keep finding it odd that these comics continually fail to grab me, given my unending love of the show. Though when I think about it, this is not unique to Doctor Who. I've been left similarly cold when picking up comic book translations of Star Trek, The Simpsons, and most things from the Whedonverse. There's just something about the rhythm and auditory aspects of television that somehow don't translate to comics for me. Even if the characters and the story are being held true to, I can't quite nail down this mental block, but it's definitely there. And in theory, I get that, Nathaniel. These are different media, and what we want as consumers of these different media. We bring different expectations, and certainly each medium has its unique advantages and disadvantages about them. We certainly have all experienced the disappointment of witnessing a poor translation of a comic or a novel to the big or small screen. So it makes sense that translating from the big or small screen to comics, that that process would also have its own unique issues. Nathaniel also wrote in about my appreciation of steampunk, something he shares, and he strongly recommended Girl Genius. This is mostly a webcomic, so I'm not sure if this Phil and Kaja folio original is on your radar. It is uniquely folio in its bouncy humor and appearance, and adds a touch of apparent magic to the steampunk world. But I adore it, and my omnibus of the first three volumes is on the docket for the Punch Like a Girl podcast, along with about 50 other things. So since that show is still on a monthly schedule, who knows when we'll get to it. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Yes, Nathaniel, I have read some of that via the collections, via the library. Terrific stuff, and I do definitely need to read more Girl Genius. If for nothing else, then to prepare for listening to that eventual future episode or two or three of Punch Like a Girl. Via Twitter, I saw that Dr. Ange was able to pick up uh, Dragon Ball and DC Superhero Girls at Free Comic Book Day. I also heard from Paul Hicks from the deceptively named Waiting for Doom podcast, because you'd think a show with that title would be about Dr. Doom, obviously, but in fact is about something called, like, the Patrol of Doom? Very sneaky. Very Australian. He says, Nice free comic book day coverage. I always feel the tension of you tempted to buy something after reading the free sample. It is tough. Paul is right on target with that. But for the most part, I want you to know I've remained strong and steadfast and cheap. I wouldn't want to let Stella down. I laughed when you said that an issue was good, so you'll be on the lookout for it at next year's free comic book day. The publisher must be thrilled. (laughs) To be fair, Paul, I've also sought out books from the library and the free Hoopla digital app after discovery via free comic book day. So, you know... The great Kansan Greg Arujo also commented on Twitter that although the episode was excellent, thank you, Greg, for some reason he didn't have much enthusiasm for the free books this year. However, two books, one that was on my list and one that I selected on a whim, were both quite good, and I highly recommend them. Those books were Guy Delisle Hostage from Drawn and Quarterly and The Ballad of Franklin Bonestiel. And on the topic of Free Comic Book Day, we also heard from Michael Laughlin, who after a terrible attempt at a terrible pun, wrote in to give me the lowdown on a few of the Free Comic Book Day books he picked up that I missed. Buffy, The High School Years from Dark Horse. As someone who really liked the TV show, especially the high school episodes, this didn't do much for me. Kel McDonald's story was pretty slight, being only 12 pages didn't help, and Yishan Lee's manga-inspired art was mostly decent but unexceptional. The final page of the fight sequence was a bit hard to follow. Skippable, even to this Buffy fan. 
based on what Nathaniel Wayne had said in a previous email about licensed comics, I did follow up with Michael to get his general take on the Buffy comics, and here's what he said. I read the first four or five trades of Buffy Season 8. I liked the BKV issues, but the rest failed to hold my interest. Some of the plot developments were kind of dumb. As such, I didn't pick up any of Season 9 and of little interest in doing so. I have the big hardcover of Angel and Faith and really enjoyed it. Christos Gage is a writer whose work I've long enjoyed, so I had a feeling it would be better than the main Buffy series. And as expected, his ability to write compelling characters made the book a great read. Rebecca Isaac's art was appealing, and her handle on character designs, action and drama, meshed well with Gage's scripts. If I find other collections for cheap, I'll be sure to pick them up. The FCBD Buffy issue was blander than the Season 8 comics and nowhere near as good as Angel and Faith. It was just sort of blah. Then, back to Michael Laughlin's original email on Free Comic Book Day. World's Greatest Cartoonists from Fantagraphics. I enjoyed most of this anthology of all original material by several noted indie cartoonists. The strips presented here were connected to current or upcoming releases by the contributors. Not everything was to my tastes, but I'm glad I picked it up. The Ballad of Franklin Bonnesteel from Z2 Comics. This was the one that the great Kansan Gregor Rujo found as well. An accidental detective takes a job from an unhinged songwriter to find a successful protege in 1970s Los Angeles. Things don't go according to plan. Gabe Saria's story was fun, but Warren Pleece's black-and-white art was the star. His work captured the look of the era, and the characters were distinct and expressive. The comic told a complete 22-page story to boot. If you find a copy, give it a read. Well, two recommendations from trusted sources, so definitely. I Hate Image from Image. Scotty Young's characters from I Hate Fairyland, a series I've never read, travel to various image comics and commit acts of violence upon many of their characters. It's dumb, it's over the top, and it's graphically violent. Even with the cartoony visuals of Young's work, I feel like I shouldn't have enjoyed the comic, but I have to admit, it made me chuckle. It's definitely for people who like their humor both black and sophomoric. Here's to another great free comic book day. There's so many different types of comics, it amazes and delights me that there really is something for everyone out there. Wholehearted agreement, Mike. I really do think that that is what makes FCBD so much fun. He closes with, looking forward to the epic Quarterbin 100, extra-sized with a foil stamp die-cut glow-in-the-dark hologram cover, Mike Laughlin. Actually, Mike, those are the one-in-a-thousand variant episodes, so you're going to want to make sure you order plenty of copies from your LPR, local podcast retailer. That last episode, number 98, was shared and forwarded by people such as Iowa's Joe Crawford of the For the Non-Discerning Reader blog, Clinton Robinson of the Coffee and Comics blog and podcast, Professor Frenzy, Keith G. Baker, Pat Sampson of the Longbox Crusade, Ed Moore of Teal Productions, part of the Comic Book Noise Feed, Comic Reflections, Ruth and Darren Sutherland from the Rad Network, Kyle Benning from King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, and Paul the Book Guy. We've got two issues of Doom 2099 coming up this episode. We're going to do them one at a time. The first one coming up right after this. Hi, I'm Nicholas Prom, the host of Comic Reflections, a podcast devoted to Silver and Bronze Age comics. Join me and my spunky sidekicks, Jeff Barnhart, the crusty curmudgeon from Dogpatch USA, and Spencer Valadez, podcasting's very own Apache Chief, as we discuss the grooviest comic books of yesteryear. You'll find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at comicreflections.wordpress.com. And we're back. In the interest of full disclosure, and as an academic, I need to say that for preparing the synopsis for these issues, 
I again use the summaries at doom2099.com as the jumping off points. Doom 2099 number 14 had a cover price of $1.25, meaning I acquired this book at a very handy 80% markdown. Cover of issue 14 by John Costanza, Ron Lim, Christy Steele, and Tom Smith shows our hero's head looming in the background, observing a couple of dudes getting ready to throw down. We are told that this is The Fall of the Hammer, Part 4 of 5. This is a crossover event, the first ever in the 2099 universe, that ran through, in order, Spider-Man 2099 number 16, Ravage 2099-15, X-Men 2099-5, and then Us, Doom 2099 number 14, and then Punisher 2099-13. The story, titled The Anvil or the Hammer, The Fall of the Hammer Part 4, was written by John Francis Moore, with art by Pat Broderick and John Nyberg. We open in the flying city of Valhalla, a marvel of 21st century technology that has, like its namesake, become a field of battle where gods and mortals clash. Inside, Thor is maddened with rage when he sees his servant Heimdall lying defeated on the ground. He wants to know who is responsible for this blasphemous act. Thor turns his rage on Doom, and as their battle rages, Loki... Uh, helps out by letting Doom know that Thor's power is all in his hammer. Doom blocks Thor's constant flow of power, causing a huge explosion, and in the ensuing Skrathoom, both are sent hurtling away from Valhalla in, goodness gracious, a great ball of fire. Loki and others realize that the city ship's gyros are not adjusting as they should to the atmospheric disturbance. The suggestion is made that the city is in fact causing the disturbance and that the flying city is doing just what it was designed to do, which is to fall. When Thor recovers, he finds himself in the laboratory of a man called Avatar. In a large tube stands the body of Sif? Avatar explains that his geneticists missed a stubborn strand of DNA in the woman who resisted the transformation into Sif. At this point, we see that Thor is actually the Reverend McAdam, a preacher in the Church of Thor. Avatar restores the Reverend to his full Thor power and sends him off on his mission of destruction. Thanks to Doom's cloaking ability, He witnesses this all and threatens Avatar, who we learn is working for Alchemax. His plan was to create heroes that the corporation could control, but Doom doubts that this will work out as he plans. Heroism is a contagious idea. It spreads quickly. I lived during the last epidemic. Avatar reminds Doom that the technology keeping Valhalla floating is failing, and that the city will fall any minute, he is able to appeal to the great man's morality by blackmailing Doom in believing that the lives at stake are more important than killing him. On Valhalla, the heroes try to organize an evacuation of the city, although Punisher and Spidey have a few spats along the way. Punisher at one point has his weapon trained on Loki, who just disappears into a mist. I'm not staying for this little Ragnarok. The Twilight of the Gods is always such a drag. As the last of the evac pods leave, Doom arrives on the scene. Avatar was right in assuming that he would choose to save the floating city, although he has some personal motives going on as well in addition to, you know, saving millions of people. Spidey is very confused about the seeming benevolence of Doom being locked in as he is into that late 20th century narrative that Doom was a villain, fake news, failing Daily Bugle, 
hashtag sad. While Doom and Spidey and the Punisher work out their feelings about each other, Ravage informs Doom that everything he has tried has not worked and that there's no stopping the inevitable. This piece of the sky will fall onto New York City. Spoiler for the end of the crossover, it doesn't fall. As a matter of fact, in an epilogue bit in the next issue of Spidey 2099, Doom is seen taking Valhalla, contrary to an agreement that all the heroes made to let it crash into an unpopulated sector of the Earth. Now, personally, I doubt that it was Doom engaging in a a lie or a deception, was probably just a minor disagreement and maybe even a issue of foreign language translation. Have you ever thought about that? Hmm? But we will revisit the topic of Valhalla, at least for a bit, shortly. But in terms of issue 14, as my buddy Trennis Magnus would ask, what did I think of this? Considering that I hadn't read any other parts of the crossover, the fact that I pretty much followed what was going on, that the basics of the story, plot, characters, etc. were clear, that's a good sign. Moore was writing X-Men 2099 at this time, so he had a little broader knowledge of the 2099 universe than just uh, working on Doom. But none of those characters are in this issue, and yet he was able to keep control of the narrative and move the storyline closer to the finale. The interactions between Spidey and Doom were really solid. I don't know enough about Spidey 2099, uh, written at this point by Peter David, by the way, to know how accurate Moore's characterization was, but I did really enjoy that. In terms of the character interactions, those were probably my favorite. I did like that Miguel knew enough about the original Spidey and his history the Age of Heroes, to know that he and Doom were probably not 100% on the same wavelength, but Miguel was able to overcome his natural Marvel Comics tendency to just uh, fight as soon as you meet someone. And they did actually work together pretty successfully. Uh, Miguel was able to set aside any bias he might have about Doom to work with him. And again, their interactions are probably the best part of the issue. The whole team, if you will throwing in Ravage and Punisher. They do, of course, successfully work together to eventually save the falling city. I like the way that this was a crossover issue. It wasn't just one of those times when the story in the main book just continued with a little nod to the crossover, sometimes as little a nod as possible. We've all read those, those books. Or where the main character in the book monopolizes all the action with the other characters doing their bits just in their titled books. Now, to some extent, this means that this was a Doom Light issue, but I think that befits the crossover nature of the story. Doom has the key bits in this issue, the dramatic moments, but there are multiple times when multiple pages go by where the action just naturally is elsewhere with other characters. And you'd think I would have a problem with that. But in the context of a crossover, a bigger story, I've got no problems with that. In terms of the new 2099 characters we meet here, Spidey has the best costume. I've seen it plenty of times, both in comics and in the iOS game, Spider-Man Unlimited. So I knew what to expect. Punisher 2099 looked reasonable, but Thor 2099? Yikes, that was... 90-ish costume design at its most 90s-ish, and that is not a compliment. But the relationship between Thor and Loki, they got the key beats correct there. I also like this idea of the corporations creating their own heroes to compete with the ones that have appeared on the scene. We have this notion that maybe 70, 80 years has passed, I'm just guessing here, since the original heroic age ended. So these characters are more legends than historical figures in some ways. But given the world of 2099, with political bodies having collapsed and corporate entities having taken that leadership role, 
Seeing that these emerging heroes could be a threat to them makes sense. Of course, Doom has been a major threat to Tiger Wild and to Vargas and the other corporate beings that he has come across. So they all recognize that this nascent second heroic age, if you will, is a growing problem for them and their grip on the world. And getting in on the action themselves, creating their own heroes to defend their own interests, that all makes sense given what we know of the 2099 world. So I did enjoy this issue, but I'm glad that the event only lasted a month. It was quick, told a big story, left the characters and titles in a good place, and then we're back to normal in the 2099 world, back to where we were the month before. The biggest downside of this issue, at least in terms of Doom 2099, which is really what matters most, was where it fell. This does split up a cliffhanger at the end of 13, adding an extra month till we get resolution, which would be okay, I guess, except that issue 16 was a fill-in. It's a good issue, but two months after this crossover, which interrupts the story, we have another interruption for that fill-in. So in the course of three issues, you have two that interrupt the flow of a story. Having been a Doom 2099 reader at the time, that was a total bummer. But just as a single issue, as a story, as part of this bigger crossover, this is not bad at all. So that's one issue down and one to go. Next up is issue 15, which does, as I said, pick up a lot of the storylines where they left off at the end of Lucky Issue 13. And we'll get to that right after this. Grom, I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50-cent Captain Kirk Migo Akachin figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Grom. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at twotruefreaks.com. And we're back. Doom 2099 number 15 also had a cover price of $1.25, meaning I also acquired this book at a very acceptable 80% markdown. The cover of issue 15 by Broderick and Nyberg shows Doom facing down a large, intimidating being in gold armor. The coming of Radian is sprawled across the bottom third of the cover, The story, titled Heaven's Net, was by the same creative team of Moore, Broderick, and Nyberg. We start with Kaz, Fortune's brother, if you recall. He was long thought dead, but then in issue 12 or 13, word came that he was alive, and Fortune set out to find him, with Poet joining her, albeit as a stowaway. Kaz stares into space waiting, sensing that soon his mission will be complete. In his head, he hears the chorus of another world, extraterrestrial melodies and rhythms that have been burned into his brain. From the doorway, his captor observes him and knows that contact is coming soon. In Latveria, Wire is rushing Andre to Antikva village when suddenly they come upon the huge floating city of Valhalla. Landing on it, they are greeted by Doom. To this, 
the newest province of Latveria. Doom bristles at the idea that he stole Valhalla, explaining how it just fell into his hands, and also neatly filling in readers about the events of the Fall of the Hammer crossover. Alchemex chose to abandon their floating city. In fact, they were prepared to let it fall on New York City, no matter the cost in lives or property. His monologue is interrupted by the holographic image of Tyler Stone, who runs Alchemax, demanding the return of the floating city, but Doom is having none of that. Without my intervention, Valhalla would have destroyed most of Manhattan. Attempt to reclaim it at your own risk. I rule the earth and sky of Latveria. So basically, Doom is telling Stone in his operatic Doom-like language, finders keepers. In Hong Kong, Fortune, Lei Fong, and Morkovkin are once more found by demon assassins. They quickly elude them and board a taxi, which will take them to a shuttle launch. Fortune presses Lee for a full explanation of what has happened to her brother. She recounts that Kaz was found preserved inside an alien spacecraft buried for centuries in the Himalayas. When they revived Kaz, he spoke an alien tongue unrecognizable to all linguists. In Latveria, Doom discovers that Earth has been abandoned by the interstellar empires. No Shi'ar Stargate, no traces of a scroll satellite or Xandarian outpost. His scanner finds only one alien signal directed at Earth, directed at Nepal, which for Doom means road trip! Traveling there via the 2099 version of a snowspeeder, Doom quickly traces the location of the signal to a craft buried beneath the snow. Inside, he is attacked by a being in golden armor, wearing a headpiece reminiscent of Galactus, or certainly of a Kirby-inspired design prototype. There is a really great splash page of the golden being reaching towards Doom, who has been knocked to the ground. And with seven pages to go in the issue, the splash is the last we see of the Doomtastic One. On one of Hong Kong's outlying islands, Fortune and company break into a shuttle, just as it's ready to launch. Fortune is surprised to find Poet inside waiting for them. Together, they board the shuttle and it lifts off. Markovkin attacks Lee and takes control. When they dock on the orbiting Chinsan space platform, they are met by the woman behind all of this. Feng Wang, who reminds her sister Li that her influence extends everywhere. All right, as my podcasting colleague Trennis Magnus would ask, what did I think of this? I am glad they addressed the lack of aliens so far in the storyline. That's one of those things you don't necessarily notice as you're reading, but after more than a year of publication, when someone points it out, you do say, Yeah, what happened to all those aliens who spent so much quality time on Earth? So in the world of 2099, not only have references to the heroes of yore been downplayed, relegated to uh, the status of uh, myth or legend or fairy tale, but also all of those aliens who visited the Marvel U in the 20th century, they all seem to be gone too. Doom asks Wire, at one point, whether he or his buddies on the net have ever heard of alien contact. His reply is that one of the net gliders once heard a rumor that the Silver Surfer was a hoax dreamed up by one of the mega corporations. Doom, of course, dismisses that, saying he has met the Surfer and that he is not a hoax. But this idea of corporations creating heroes ties in directly to what we read in issue 14 just, what, 10 minutes ago? So I definitely liked that aspect of the story. And obviously we get the idea that Nepal and this golden machine and Kaz are all connected in terms of this this single one alien presence on Earth. I like where that's going. 
that seems a reasonable place to take the story or a reasonable expansion or at least investigation into the greater 2099 world. Like I said before, the flow of the story is really choppy here. We have the main story in issue 13, the crossover in 14, the main story here in 15, and like I said, there's a fill-in coming in 16 before returning to this story in 17. It's kind of like the current Wonder Woman series in DC Rebirth, only not intentionally. John Francis Moore does a great job of bringing readers up to speed on what happened if they hadn't read the four or five additional books of the crossover, which, just as an example, I did not do. But he uses Doom's capturing or annexing, oh, sorry, I mean heroically rescuing and rightfully claiming the city of Valhalla as the means to tell that story. And having Tyler Stone show up to yell at him was a nice touch, again, giving us narrative, but doing it in an interesting way. I would think that if you're writing most comic book characters, you need to make sure you include at least one, preferably two, you know, action scenes built specifically around that character. Green Lantern needs to do a cool ring construct every issue, at least once. Wolverine has to snicked a few times each issue, whatever. And if you're writing Doom... You need to give him at least one, preferably more, speeches. His soliloquies are among the most unique and identifiable aspects of Doom, which is why writing him, I think, can be a little tricky. But Moore does a great job making sure that that aspect of Doom is regularly accounted for. And Pat Broderick does an excellent job infusing a sense of Jack Kirby into this this golden machine or being. I I guess we can call this thing Radian. That's what it says on the cover, even though I don't think they ever use that word inside the issue. And that splash page with Radian reaching out to Doom, who he is knocked down onto the floor. It's actually pretty dramatic. It seems like that, I think, where Broderick is at his best. And even though I do like the supporting cast that this book has developed over the issues... Poet, Fortune, Wire, as well as those those corporate enemies. I maybe would have liked this book to have a little different pacing. I don't know if that's the right word. But maybe that the final third of the book could have been broken up just a bit so we didn't totally lose Doom for those last seven or eight pages. I like that storyline. It adds character to those characters in the cast while also tying in to the alien thread that Doom is tracking but maybe those stories could have been integrated together just a little bit more. But that counts as a pretty minor quibble, and if that's the worst thing about an issue, that means the issue is pretty good. The Verdict on Doom 2099 issues 14 and 15, two very different issues, doing very different things. But whether the issue was part five of a six-parter or part of the, the bigger, broader Doom 2099 story arc, they both worked. They both accomplished what they set out to do. Yes, they could have had more doom, but that applies to every comic that Marvel produces, or DC, or Archie. They could all be improved by an increase in the doom quantity. So, of course, these were solid quarter bin deals. That wraps up my coverage of doom... 2099, issues 14 and 15, bringing episode 99 of the quarter bin closer to a close. This also brings our coverage of Doom 2099 to a close. Although I, of course, have the entire run of this title, all 44 issues, only the first 15 qualify for quarter bin inclusion. When I started covering multiple issues of this back in 59, The plan was to get to these two issues right here in episode 99 and wrap up this miniseries. Fear not, there will definitely be more doom in our future, just maybe not the doom from the future. But if you do want my thoughts on a further issue of Doom 2099, and you know you do, I joined Paul Spataro, Dr. Bill, and Emily way back on Back to the Bins 143 
where we covered issue 31 of Doom 2099. M covered an issue of the Chronicles of Quorum in that episode, by the way. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm positive I talked about issue 16 somewhere, but I just can't place it. It was a filler issue, like I said, it, but it was sort of an origin story written and drawn by Ernie Colon. And it's a really excellent issue for what it's worth. I just wish I could remember if and where I talked about it. And what that means is that for purposes of the podcast, 2099 now goes in the same category as the Ultraverse, Amalgam, the New Universe, even Vertigo, as dead universes that we've covered here. So we won't be talking about any more 2099, at least for a long while. Uh, Those rules start after episode 100 is over, by the way. But before we get to a discussion of what's going to be happening in episode 100, I want to take this opportunity to review what all we've covered in these first 99 episodes. During that time, we've covered a total of 117 comics. This does not count the free comic book day episodes, three of them that we've done, because those are much quicker mini-reviews. But in terms of more formal coverage, I guess, it's 117. Now, it was not until episode 56 that we covered more than one issue in an episode. And that has become much more commonplace since then. And spoilers, in episode 100, we crank up the multiple issues in an episode to an absurd level. Anyway, among those 117 comics... 56 have been DCs and 50 have been Marvels. And strangely, despite their overwhelming presence in the cheap bins, not a single issue from Image has ever been discussed here. And you know, that is something I should probably correct sometime in the next 100 episodes. Of the indies, it's four from Malibu, three from First Comics, and one each from Valiant, Tops, Techno Comics, and New Paradigm. There were two other aspects that I looked at in terms of the books that we've covered so far beyond the publisher. And first is the year of the comic. Because we've covered a few reprints along the way, the numbers here actually add up to 124. Because for reprints, I counted them in both the era of the original and when the story was republished. Now, the oldest book was not a reprint. That was Blackhawk 122 from 1958, which we covered for Memorial Day 2015. We've covered no other books from the 1950s, but we have looked at three from the 60s and nine from the 70s. And then, no surprise, it cranks up from there. 32 books from the 1980s and 55, almost half the books we've ever done, are of course from the 1990s. In terms of the more recent eras, we've looked at a dozen from the aughts, and a dozen from the 2010s. No real surprises there, I suppose, but it's interesting that the numbers do reflect what the general consensus is about the 90s, the era, the, the hype, the overprinting, the, the, the boom and bust aspect of that. The area that most intrigued me that I think also speaks to the nature of both the comics industry broadly as well as the makeup of the cheap bins was the analysis of issue numbers of the books we've covered here. Of those 117 books, 31 of them were either issue zeros or number ones. Another 23 were numbered 2 through 4, and 19 were 5 through 10. That is almost two-thirds of all the books we've covered here were numbered somewhere between 0 and and 10. Of course, specifically, we chose a number of miniseries to cover as well as events and one-shots like Amalgam and Girl Frenzy. So that increases the high number of low-numbered books. But I was surprised by just how high that number was. Only 14 came from issues 11 through 25, with another 21 coming from issues 26 through 100. And only nine of the 117 books have been from issues numbered over 100. Now, of course, that speaks to the nature of the comic business. 
There are comparatively very few series that ever get to an issue 100. And in the modern era of comics, series getting to the triple digits will be even more rare, even fewer and far between. Well, thank you for letting me ramble on about that stuff. There will not be a quiz, by the way. And all of that brings us to, next up, we are at episode 100. Or technically part one of episode 100. Because in that great comic book tradition, it's going to be a summer-long event, six parts long. Because over the length and breadth of episode 100, we are covering 100 comics. I explained this in detail in part one, but the LCS I used to go to a lot used to have 50-issue grab bags at the awesome price of $7. I ended up buying two of those, totaling 100 issues at an average of $0.14 each. These will obviously be pretty short reviews, short segments, and for as many as possible, I'll be joined by guests. And on part one, of episode 100, we'll cover 17 of those comics. Issues that will be covered in part 1 include, but are not limited to, Legionnaires, 3 and 4, Hawkworld, number 1, Silver Surfer 11, Strangers in Paradise, 2 and 12, and Action Comics, 655. Guests joining me on part 1 of episode 100 include, but are not limited to, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Gene Hendricks, Mark Adams, Michael Bailey, and Luke Giaconetti. I am very excited about this. I've enjoyed prepping and recording the segments that I have done so far, and certainly hope that you'll enjoy listening to them. If you have any questions or comments about these issues, the episode, or any of the first 99 episodes we've done, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The quarter bin podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.